Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of the Value Guys. I'm a 30-year Wall Street veteran that's had to take on a secret identity and go underground in order to provide my candid thoughts on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen my face on TV, you've seen me quoted in the news, but my bosses would never allow my unfiltered views on the air, so I've disguised my voice and they'll never know. This week, I'm looking at the May 28, 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey. Uh, I've got uh, three pretty good ideas this week, all in medical products. Uh, but first, a couple of caveats. First, uh, this is for entertainment purposes only. That's not a guarantee. Secondly, I may have many conflicts of interest, including that... I am selling stocks I'm recommend, uh, recommending that you buy or buying stocks that I'm recommending that you sell. Uh, next, I may be completely uninformed, and oftentimes I am. I'm just reading value line after work. And then finally, and this is important, oftentimes I may be heavily drinking. Okay, I've said it. It's after work. I'm just paging through value line uh, and... Uh, recording, you know, some ideas um, for you, the listener. Uh, the format of the show, if you're a new listener, and this is about our fifth year of doing these shows, <clears throat> is that I do uh, a little section of the show I like to call It Would Help My Portfolio If. It used to be just a rant, but then that seemed a little too self-absorbed. So uh, now it's really about my portfolio and what would help it. And then I have three pretty good value ideas um, out of that week's Value Line Investment Survey. And I keep all my past favorites on my website, www.thevalueguys.com, where you'll see photos, bios, things like that. Also, there's a button there that says Val's Best Ideas. There's about five years of my best ideas up there. Every couple of weeks I pick a stock and uh, I put it in there and really haven't traded it. I sold, I think, one position and that was it. It just got too time consuming to track it. So I put them in and you can see how they've done. Um, I've saved it as a file, but when you pull it in, the links should work within Yahoo Finance to go and see, you know, the data on those stocks, etc. So that's worth doing, www.thevalueguys.com. Uh, this week's um, It Would Help My Portfolio If is really not that well thought out. I've been extremely busy of late. Um, we continue to be um, moving in a process, continual process of moving at the office. I may have spoken about this before. It's just never-ending. So uh, I was looking at the new space today, and it's coming along nicely. But, I mean, it's going on and on. I don't know if you've ever been in a move, but it just takes longer than you ever expected to. And then today, the show's a couple of days late, was a, a horrible day. Um, the Russell 2000 value benchmark, which is uh, my benchmark, was down, I think, 2.5% or something today. There's just so much volatility. And, uh, you know, anytime you're talking about a bank going broke, well, 
uh, it's a huge problem, of course, because um, the bank itself is leveraged. So if they go broke, um, there's a lot of other people that go broke <clears throat> in a multiplier based on the company's sort of assets to equity ratio, which is usually, you know, it's it's oftentimes you know, 10 or higher, which is where this all started, this whole problem. And so you can imagine if a country goes broke. So, you know, I didn't look specifically today, but this Greek Greek problem. Uh, I, I did um, I did do a little bit of research on this. I'll show you how little. Uh, the other day I noticed that the uh, EU is going to put up the equivalent of about $900 billion to try to shore up Greece. And so I thought, huh, that's interesting. So, because that was about the size of our uh, bailout uh, package, $900 billion. So, I went to the St. Louis Federal Reserve site, and they've got a bunch of terrific publications there. I highly recommend. Um, it's required reading to read National Economic Trends and National Monetary Trends. And honestly, if you can imagine, there was a time when this was only available in the mail. And it was one of the first things I did uh, when I got a job on Wall Street was to subscribe to these publications, and they would just come in the mail. And back then, I mean, you know, that was a big deal. Obviously, getting them or, you know, you'd have to go to the library. But, of course, now it's uh, they're on the site. They have them updated to the minute. Just make it a habit to go. Um, the one I did uh, in thinking about this Greek debt was... The, uh, the organization has a publication called International uh, Economic Trends, which is nice. And you go in, and they list, um, well, some charts have every nation, um, but many have just the top 10 or 15 economies, which is still very helpful. And it gives you a sense of what's going on in Greece, because um, I'll say Greece doesn't make every chart but it makes many charts. And um, again, this is rough, and it's after work, and I'm just having a beverage here, but my recollection is that the Greek economy <clears throat> is 5% the size of the U.S. economy. 5% the size. And I think that's approximately right. So I couldn't help but be uh, uh, interested in the in the thought that we had a nine hundred billion dollar bailout, and we're a I don't know the number right now fifteen trillion sixteen trillion dollar economy. Greece also had a nine hundred billion dollar bailout, and they are a uh, I don't even want to try to do the math. $800 billion economy. So the EU is putting up money the size of the entire economy, one year's worth of GDP in Greece. So uh, anyway, that made me feel much better about our problems here because they seem, uh, you know, on a vastly smaller scale, although the trends aren't good. And I guess... Uh, you know, the, the government unions have run away with um, taxpayer money in Greece. And, you know, we're on that same sort of trend here. 
Um, so my, uh, you know, my, my rant this week, it would help my portfolio if the politicians could just get it together on tackling the budget. Because right now, um, the trends, and when you go in and look at this international trends, um, you can see it. There's data on debt as a percentage of the GDP of that nation. And, um, and you know, the trends here are uh, behind Greece, thankfully, but not that far behind. And so if you extrapolate what's going on, it's bad news. Obviously, that won't happen because the United States won't actually go broke. But what does that mean? We're going to have inflation to uh, reduce the debt. That's the most likely outcome, and that's been done. Are we going to actually repudiate debt? I mean, I very much doubt we'd ever do that. Better to inflate your way out of it. Um, is the uh, U.S. government debt going to be downgraded by Moody's or S&P? Not that their words should matter, given the history of their ability to know what anything should be rated anymore. Uh, but, you know, many firms obviously have their own analysts who can determine the um, fair rating on, on debt. And should the U.S. be downgraded? Um, you know, who knows? I haven't studied that matter. I would say likely not, because when you take into account the uh, assets of the United States, putting those on the balance sheet, you know, they they might have some value. I'm sure that's not being counted. But it would help my portfolio if we could get this budget situation under control. If you're going to tax everyone to pay for these deficits, let's just get that on the table so business can get back to the business of investing and all that. People can choose careers based on, you know, what the best ones are in the new um, landscape. But leaving these things up in the air unspoken isn't good because there's millions of people that need to decide what to do right now, what to do with their capital, uh, what to do with their educational dollars, etc. And a lot of that, just those decisions are not going to be as well made if we don't have these uh, decisions uh, at least somewhat roughed out. There's going to be a truth at some point, and it'd be best to be talking about that now. Uh, it would unleash a lot of productive capacity of our nation and others if the people making the decisions, which is all the citizens, had better information coming out of the political class than we do now. And if that were happening, it would it would help my portfolio. So there, there's my rant on that. Note, because over the last four years or five years on the show, I'm sure I've had a disparaging remark, always in good fun, about Canada. Well, here's something, including an idea I want to mention. But first, in looking at this data, international uh, economic trends at the St. Louis Reserve uh, Bank, it turns out, and who would have thought this? I didn't think this. Canada is among the best financed Western nations, perhaps of any nation in the world, in terms of debt to GDP, they've been a very conservatively run country. I had no idea. They have uh, the best piggy bank in the world right now in Canada. Uh, they've, um, they've been very careful. They've been good stewards of capital. 
and they look like they're in very good shape. So, um, which brings me to my next point. With the taxes that are going up here in America, and Canada, clearly a better steward of capital than America, and it's in the data, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not making this up. You can look this up yourself at the St. Louis Federal Reserve. But Canada, better run. Okay, look, there's a lot of Americans in the higher income brackets that are a bit annoyed that not only are taxes going up, which is, to me, an independent decision from what you're going to do with the money. Here in America, we decide both at the same time by talking about how great it would be to have all these uses for extra uh, money. Of course, things are always a good idea. And then we follow up with a increasing percentage of GDP that's spent by the government, which increasingly erodes returns on capital. I've gone into that. That's not my rant right now. But in talking about Canada as the best fiscally run nation, what if Canada put this offer on the table? And I'm just speaking right now to any influential Canadians that are hearing my voice right now. Here's the offer, okay? Go to the highest levels of your government, wherever they may be, okay? Now, I do have a phone book. I can call Canada myself. But if you're maybe in a little better position than that, call somebody. Here's the deal. Anyone that moves there from America, okay, gets some type of flat tax rate, make it 25%. I was looking at your uh, your fine nation's tax rates recently in terms of the federal and the state, and it gets up there around 50%, but you know what? That's what's happening here, too. When you start laying in the state, and for God's sake, the city and the federal and the property, et cetera, et cetera. So I think Canada's starting to be competitive. If you just give people a three-, four-year break on the taxes, I think you could lure a lot of people, and I'm talking five to ten million dollars, million, million, five to ten million people. I've done the math in terms of looking at the percentage of the population that's in the income brackets that would be bringing stuff to Canada. So high-income American intellectual capital workers coming into Canada, lower tax rates, okay, it's a gold mine. I know it worked in luring a lot of, um, you know, uh, really skilled Chinese workers in when Hong Kong was turning over. America might be turning over. So it's a shot with, I think, the population of Canada. You know, excuse me if I'm wrong. It's, what, 30 million, something like that? If you had 5 to 10 million high-income workers from America that have just frickin' had it with these taxes... Okay, you would dramatically increase the per capita GDP just by the sheer weight of incoming high-income workers from America. It would be revolutionary in terms of what it would do for Canada on a long-term growth basis into the future and the future of our grandkids, etc. So that's my rant. It would help my portfolio if, long story short, Canada cut their tax rates for Americans, three-year grace period. I promise that would work big time. Okay. Now that I've wasted just tons of your time, I've got three ideas this week. And I'm sorry that took so long, not so much because I'm using up your time, but because I've got something really important to do right now.
and um, a particular person is uh, waiting for me. I have a meeting, and um, I just had to duck into, I actually, it's not a phone booth or anything, but it's a restroom. Uh, well, I shouldn't say what it is, but increasingly I'm just doing the show, you know, on the sly on my phone, and I have a few minutes tucked away here between meetings. Uh, so anyway, three ideas this week. They're all in the healthcare area, in part because the uh, the, the healthcare bill has scared the crap out of everyone in healthcare. Uh, in part because there's these onerous taxes for the producers of medical products, and don't get me started. But if you want America to shine in industries, and we have been, you know, a world leader in medical equipment. Why would you tax the crap out of it? Because then you're going to get less of it. It's like, it's so simple. If you don't want your child to cross the street, punish him when he crosses the street. If you don't want your child to make world-class medical equipment, punish the child when they make world-class medical equipment. That's what's happening. Now, that's the bad news. And that's going to hurt workers, et cetera, et cetera. The good news is these stocks are already reflecting that. And if we're moving towards some sort of nationalized process in these things, which, you know, if the government takes over responsibility for the revenue and the costs, then these things are wards of the state. And they're going to be managed on a return on capital basis, just like the electric utilities, the water utilities, and everybody else. Well, if that happens, all those companies trade at high multiples because of the reduced risk associated with them, and it freezes up market shares, so you don't have to worry that you're going to go out of business because you're not because the government's going to keep in business. So it's the same thing that uh, you know happens on the utilities. So in the case of uh, first up, I'm going to do Zimmer Holdings ticker ZMH. I'm not going in page number order this week because uh, <clears throat> I got a decent response to my a question about page number order, and the answer was nobody cares about page number order. Evidently, except me. So, uh, and so I'm just flying without page numbers again this week. Zimmer Holdings, ZMH. What's my theme? Well, Zimmer Holdings is one of the leading uh, manufacturers of orthopedic products. And so when your knee or hip goes, you need uh, a Zimmer knee. Typically, uh, those products get associated with particular doctors that learn the process with those particular, you know, manufacturers' equipment. And so, um, and to patients, the price of the whole procedure includes not only the, the equipment, but the doctor's time, the hospital time, the nurse's time, all the Tylenols they give you that are overpriced, etc. So it's been one of those businesses where the price of, as expensive as a knee is, the price of that in conjunction with the price of the whole procedure you're getting is small. So not small, but not, you know, the majority. It might be 20, 30 percent. Um, and so um, traditionally that comes. And, uh, and you know, no one's debating the prices on these things because you got to go into talking about the doctor's fee. It's all bundled in. Um, and so, you know, pricing hasn't been an issue. There is some Medicare, Medicaid business here. So you do have sometimes prices, you know, uh, increases are a little more difficult, but you certainly get inflation with the occasional risk of a slight rollback, which could be 5% or so. 
Um, but behind that is the demographics of an aging population driving unit growth and pretty stable market shares among the four or five companies or three or four that do this because, again, doctors get tied up in the individual systems. So my immediate attraction is simply that this is trading at a discount P.E. to the market, and over most of the history of these things, I'm looking at this one because I know it a little better, It uh, and this used to be a subsidiary of Bristol-Myers. It was spun out in 2001. It was a big deal when it came out, and if you'd bought it then, it was a great deal. And I was familiar with it back then. But what's happened is um, they sort of got to a plateau valuation-wise, and while sales have continued to rise, in fact, doubling over the last, uh, I don't know, eight years, the stock price has been flat because the multiple's gone from 40 times earnings to 13. Now, you know, I'd say a couple things about that. This is most certainly going to grow faster than GDP, and you've got operating margins in the upper 30s, very stable, which says there's something proprietary going on, and to me that says protected, which means low risk, and yet I've got a I've got a PE that's uh, below average, which means I've got an above average yield. And I haven't done the math here. But the best thing I have in a stock that's comparable to a bond yield is simply the uh, EBITDA, or earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization as a cash flow to me, the buyer, divided by the enterprise value, which is the total shares times the price plus all the debt, because I'd have to buy that to get control, and then net out any cash that's on the balance sheet. And that would somewhat represent my total cash investment to own the whole company. And EBITDA kind of represents the cash I might get as a yield on that, which if I took that money instead and bought a, a bond, uh, I'd get that yield. And that would come to me as a pre-tax yield. And this would come to me as a pre-tax yield, so it becomes a little bit comparable on that on that uh, metric. So I'm just doing the calculation here. I got uh, let's just round it: 12 billion in market cap, that's shares times price. A billion in debt, that's 12, that's 13 billion minus another billion. So I'm back to the 12 billion, and the EBITDA. 40% of, call it 4.5 billion, is about 18. Is it? What? 18. Wow. So, um, this thing is trading at, uh, wait a minute here. So 1.8 billion in EBITDA, 12 billion in enterprise value. Okay, so that's um, Jesus, about what seven times? Yeah, I don't have a calculator. So seven times one over seven, one over seven is going to be 14 percent. So I've got a 14 percent cash on cash yield, and I'm going to get some growth, which value line estimates here is six percent on earnings, but I'm not. Who cares? If that's right, great. It could be higher or lower. I've got the 14% in hand right now. And when I look back over history here, that number, you know, you could argue whether it's going to grow or not, clearly, because I don't know if it will. But the point is, it always has. 
So if I put up that capital right now, that cash flow coming to me, um, it never gets worse than that, really. I mean, because the cash flow never goes down here. Now, you know, I guess you have some risk that the government comes in and tries to press you on price. But at some point, you just say no. You're coming after the doctors because the fees are wrapped up. Doctors like particular products. And so I, I think that's unlikely. Um, so I like it seven times. It's, according to Value Line, um, you know, they have a little commentary here. Business looks good. Um, you know, they point out that there is some discretionary nature to these procedures. So, you know, do people put them off in a higher unemployment period? They probably do. So in that sense, you get a little bit of wind at your back. Um, but um, I think in terms of fear of what, you know, the healthcare legislation might do, this thing's trading at a 20% discount PE right now. And back over history, it tends to trade at a, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50% premium. So I think um, some of that fear is in there. And if you get some change in the political climate to where you undo these onerous taxes on our best industries, which, of course, on a separate rant I'm an advocate for, if that were to come about, then the PE here is going to unwind anyway, and that's a reasonable bet over the next 10 years. So that's just wind at your back. So Zimmer Holdings, ZMH. Uh, next up, um, and this is a very similar story. You know, it's St. Jude Medical, STJ is the ticker. And again, no page number, not uh, providing the page number on that one. Let's see here. Um, St. Jude. The difference between St. Jude and um, Zimmer is uh, that St. Jude does a different medical product. They do um, cardiac uh, medical devices for uh, to uh, help global, well, global, okay, cardiac rhythm management, cardiac surgery, cardiology, atrial fibrillation therapy. So I guess they do these implantable devices that uh, help to shock the heart back and provide a stable beat to the heart and all that. And they compete with Medtronic on that. And, um, you know, I took a look at Medtronic. It's a fine, great company as well. So, um, but I think right now St. Jude looked a little cheaper to me. And so I'm doing that one. But again, you've got high returns on capital. You've got fear in this one, just like in Zimmer, that these taxes that are going to hit in 2013, I think it's a, I forget what it is, it's an excise tax on medical products sales, so it's nonsense. Maybe it'll go away. It doesn't kick in for, I don't know, three or four years anyway, um, but clearly that's in the stock. This one, just like Zimmer, trades at a 20% PE discount, and yet when you look back over history... It's a 50% premium trader in most years. Enterprise value to EBITDA on this one, $12.7 billion in market cap. That's shares times price, $1.7 billion. So that in debt, that's $14.4 minus the cash. So 
call it 14 billion. And again, I've got high margins here, 31%. To me, these high operating margins say proprietary, or the customers wouldn't pay up if they had, um, you know, uh, an, an easy way to do so because competition would drive away these margins. Um, at a 31% operating margin, that means they're marking up their costs 50% or so. And um, if someone else could do it, they would, because that's just too much to make. It's all about the uh, the demand curve and um, the need for this specific product. And again, some of those margins are tied up in the fact that doctors get used to specific products, and so there's no they just want that one. It doesn't matter what the price is, because again, in the in the scheme of the whole procedure. You not only have the device, you have the doctor's time and the team's time in, in planting that device, and the hospital, the operating room, etc. So uh, it's, uh, it's a product that uh, is insulated from pricing, and so they have a long history of these very high margins, um, which have been just edging up a little bit over the last five years. Who knows if that's because of mix or something, I can't really tell. But... Um, Again, these guys have been, according to Value Line, having a decent period in here with sales up, um, earnings up a little more. Um, you know, a big competitor had to stop selling. Boston Scientific, I guess, lost some patent battles, has to stop selling. So they're seeing a surge in that right now uh, as they gain share. But then presumably they'll keep that share. So they've got a couple businesses growing 15 and 17 percent, etc. So you know the story's simple here. Um, market shares don't change a lot. Demographics, aging population, and um, you know they've got a unique product that's uh, being requested by doctors, and doctors are in at least at this point um, sort of in bed with the uh, healthcare legislation, and so not act my opinion to get dinged on these things um oh enterprise value to ebitda i'm sorry i'm figuring that out here uh what's this 31 percent operating margin 5.5 billion in sales so that's a billion five this one's a little more expensive looks like it's about um call it nine times ebitda so nine times that's still 11% cash on cash return um, same calculation I did on the last one and according to value line anyway earnings are going to grow 11% so I get the cash on cash yield 11% plus earnings grow at 11% uh, meaning that the value of my company is growing at that rate each year again assuming a constant multiple which a lot of assumptions a lot of guessing in this business um, so I like it, St. Jude Medical, STJ, don't know the page number. And then finally, again, same exact theme. We've got an out-of-favor, big-branded healthcare company under pressure, no doubt because of the fear of what, you know, the uh, healthcare legislation is going to bring to their revenue line. But it's Johnson & Johnson, ticker J&J, don't know the page number. Uh, trading cheaper than it ever trades. Um, they're a little different than the other companies I mentioned, which are almost entirely medical products. 
attached to doctor's work. These guys are three-pronged, if I could say that. One-third or so, 30% is the consumer business you know, Johnson & Johnson. Uh, One-third is uh, medical devices that they make, diagnostic equipment. And then another third is pharm pharma. They do have, you know, pharmaceuticals in the market that doctors can prescribe. And, um, you know, that's the business that's under pressure, which is why I would rarely recommend a, just a big pharma, straight pharma company, other than to note that, you know, they have sales forces that can distribute product of little firms that they might buy on the cheap, et cetera, so they're finding their own way. But here, you know, the third that is drugs is under constant pressure uh, from uh, generics and the erosion of patents, et cetera. Um, they have evidently developed some new drugs, maybe bought some new drugs. They have something called Remicade that's uh, selling very well. <clears throat> According to Value Line, they've improved their pipeline in that area, which is, of course, what they're going to do. Um, they're big. They've got a $174 billion market value. They can go and find things to do and fill their pipeline and give their sales force something to do. That is something Big Pharma can still do. Um, but the nice thing here is that's only a third of their business. The consumer side is fine, right? They've got a brand. They protect it. Um, the margins there are low enough that no one can compete with them on price and quality and win, so it's safe. I'm not sure what they do in medical products. Um, Let's see, they do uh, wound closures, minimally invasive surgical instruments, diagnostics, orthopedics, and contact lenses. There's no breakdown here as to how much was what or what, so I don't know. You'd have to do your own work. But uh, unlike these other two companies, these guys also, in addition to brand, which plays into demographics, so there's some undertone of uh, you know a little bit better growth than GDP because of the demographics of population. They pay a little yield, so you know they're three and a half percent, which is better than you're getting in many places. The dividend is a little less than half earnings, so it's sustainable. In fact, on the page, there's never been a decline in dividend, nor would I ever expect one. Um, returns on capital here very respectable. You know, they were in the high 20s 10 years ago. They're at 20 now. I'm going to guess that some of that erosion is just mixed toward, you know, consumer and away from pharma as, uh, you know, some of their patented products came off and they moved more towards other areas. But I don't know that. That'd just be my guess. Um, the company is, uh, they just raised a dividend, so they must be feeling pretty good about that. They do tend to consistently buy stock back, so they're, uh, they are investing you know, where it makes sense there. That gives me confidence they're not blowing capital spending money because somebody's paying careful attention to how much they can pay for stock and how much stock they can buy. Uh, depreciation, I'm just looking here. Um, capital spending, buck fifteen per share. So about, uh, it looks like depreciation and capital spending are about in sync. So uh, they're uh, evidently growing at a rate where this return on capital will just likely continue to sort of move down a little bit, it would seem. 
and they're uh, you know with fewer better return opportunities their best return opportunity is to buy the stock and they continue to do that so that's a good I think that's a good shareholder friendly approach their enterprise value to EBITDA again I didn't do the math here very bad this week let me try to do it here 174 uh, plus 8, 182, 72, 165, and about 20 something there. So this is about eight times. Which again, I'd look at the inverse 12.5% cash on cash. This is again better than you're doing at the bank. According to value line, these guys are going to grow only 8% the next 10 years versus 12 the last 10. I don't know why value line would say that. They're probably taking a a little, you know, haircut due to the pharma side that, you know, hasn't been growing and isn't replacing itself and more pricing pressure in the uh, consumer side. So I'll give you that. That's possible. But that's still an upper teens return in a dangerous world. And I'm getting a little bit of that now, 3 0.4% yield. So, so that's it. That's all three stocks, and I managed to get through it. Hold on. Um, let me give you a favorite this week. Um, you know, I think it's going to have to be St. Jude Medical. I think they could really surprise to the upside ticker S T. Jay. So that's this week's show. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.